Hello, patrons. It's me again. Um, I'm here this time with a bonus podcast interview with Cameron Hurley, who is the author of The Light Brigade, which is the book that the Flash Forward Book Club read in May. As always, this interview is going to contain spoilers, like a lot of spoilers. Like we literally talk about the very end of the book, the last scene of the book, which is a very big spoiler. So if you have not read the book and you want to read the book and you don't want to be spoiled, turn back now. Do not listen to this episode. Um, there is just, yeah, like so many spoilers in this episode. Um, if you are like, what are you talking about? What is the book club? So if you are in the $7 and up Patreon level, you have access to a book club. Every month we read a book. And at the end of the month, I try to do an interview with the author of the book so that you all can hear it. Um, so far, I am three for three, I think. Um, the next book for June, this book for June is... Um, it's, by, it's called Superior, The Return of Race Science um, by Angela Saini. And I already talked to Angela and she will also do an interview. So I will be four for four, which I'm very excited about. Um, and um, so, yeah, so I'm just going to cut right to the interview. This is my interview with Cameron Hurley, The Light Brigade. Again, so many spoilers, just like every from the very beginning, a lot of spoilers. The one last thing I will say about this is that on the main podcast, I almost never include cursing in the episodes um, because I know people use it in classrooms for teaching and stuff like that. Um, and with younger kids uh, on this bonus episode, there is some cursing. So if you don't want to hear curse words um, or you're playing this with kids who you don't want to hear curse words, maybe skip this one. Okay. Here's my interview with Cameron Hurley. Uh, hi, Cameron. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> on the bonus podcast. I, we have spoken before years and years ago. Years ago. Yeah. Many years ago for an article yeah. I wrote at The Atlantic about sort of like women in science fiction and trying to kind of maybe push back against this narrative that like now is the time for women mm -hmm. in science fiction. Um, and I'm so excited to have you, A, because I loved Geek Feminist Revolution first, um, and just all your work is great. And um, I'm excited to talk about this book, which like I tore through, like I read it so fast. <laughs> and then nice. I had to go back and reread because I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> which, um, which I want to ask about in terms of like keeping everything straight, because I can't sure. even imagine. Um, but first, I want to start actually Casey from the book club asked the first question that I was going to ask. So when did you start working on this? I know that this was based on a short story. But when did you sort of start thinking about the light brigade as a concept in your mind? I started thinking about it. Uh as a novel, actually, with at my agent's suggestion, we had done a two-book deal with Joe Monti at Saga Press. The first book was for Stars of Legion, which is an epic space opera. Uh, and he needed a second book. And we were like, eh? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and my agent came to me, she said, you know, there's that short story, because I send her the stuff, my Patreon stories, and because um, she likes to read them. She's a fan. Amazing, my agent. Um, and she said, hey, could you... Uh, what what I really like the voice in this short story. I like that it's military SF. And again, my background, um, my academic background is actually looking at resistance movements and war and, and all of those things. And she said, it'd be really cool for you to actually do like a military science fiction novel in this voice. And so we pitched it to my editor and he's like, sure, do what you want. Um, that's actually one of the things about Joe that's great is I'm just like, I'm going to do Killing Eve meets Die Hard in space. And he's like, sure, <laughs> you go for it. Go I'll for buy it. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that was after, it was right after Stars of Legion came out. Um, I don't even know when that was. I could look it up, but I won't. Um, so it was a few years. 2015, yeah. That was yeah. a short story. Yeah. And so I think maybe 20, 2015 was short story, 2016 
you know, maybe I started to really get into it. And, you know, I, I wrote the first 40,000 words fairly quickly. And then the problem was that, yeah, then the time travel started to happen. And then I was like, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it was, it was in my head for quite a while, which is like that with a lot of my, a lot of my fiction, it takes at least a year uh, of research and writing. And a lot of, of the, what came into, you know, Light Brigade are, are, it's research I've been doing, you know, since graduate school uh, or before. Um, a lot of that just sort of came to the fore as I was uh, putting the book together. So it's one of those ones where it's sort of a, 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 an amalgamation of a lot of years of study in um, military science fiction. So. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask that because I, I went and looked up when the short story was and it was 2015, mm -hmm. which is a year before 2016, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is a <laughs> specific date. Uh, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and like, you know, the book is so much about and, and that very last line of the book is um, about resistance. And today we hear about like the resistance sort of in a specific mm -hmm. context about Trump and the United States and politics. But so much of this feels so resonant. And it was really so, actually not surprising necessarily knowing that like you think about resistance movements all the time. And that's what you've studied. But like, it is interesting to kind of know that it started before a lot of what I think like mainstream, quote unquote, resistance narratives are in the US right now. So that's like, just interesting to me that like, this sort of started before all of that. Well, sure. And I think I think what we've seen for a long time is this real corporate hegemony uh, in you know, the United States where we're more and more, it's, we, I call it the Robocop future, right. Um, mm -hmm. where we've been leaning in this direction more and more And you know, Bezos, every time he talks about going to the moon, I'm like, Oh, Wayland Yutani <laughs> is going to go to the moon. Uh, <laughs> it's very rare, right. We, we, we have seen that for quite some time. And I think we all got a lot of hope with Obama thinking, Oh, we're gonna, we're gonna go, you know, progress is a straight line and it's not right. Um, it's, it's very difficult, uh, to topple the, these really ingrained, um, you know, corporate mega behemoths that frankly are now have a lot more control and a lot more money and a lot more power than most governments. Uh, and that was something that I'd been thinking about certainly before even the election. I think the election really distilled all those feelings because it was like, and, and we've, I've talked about this with friends and stuff where it was almost, uh, it's almost cathartic and that it was, this is everything we told you to be scared of and to worry about. And it has just happened. And everything I told you so, right? Everything I, I was one of the, I told you, so I flipped out the next day. I'm like, here's yeah. what you were seeing. Cause I'm a historian. I'm a historian. Right. I've researched this. I know what the fuck I'm talking about. And, uh, for people to go, Oh, let's just see. And, blah, blah, and that's like, this is how it is. And so I yeah. think, I think I'd seen some of that beforehand and then getting to write then, um, a novel that really helped distill sort of all of that historical stuff. Um, and again, that, that was very, it's very, very much novel of its time. Um, in addition to being sort of like uh, the anti Ayn Rand, anti Starship Troopers novel, um, it's kind of in conversation with those. Um, I kind of wanted to write something that was um, a repost to, to a lot of those, uh, those narratives. So. Starship Troopers actually came up a lot in discussion mm -hmm. in the book club, in the Slack. I think a number of people mentioned it as like 
a thing that they thought about when reading this book, which I think is really interesting. And I know that at the end of the book in the acknowledgements, you're like, yes, I'm referencing stuff. Don't at me. Like I know what I'm doing, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> but I'm curious. And even, you know, the Verge in the review, in their review of the book mentioned mm-hmm. Starship Troopers. I mean, like, how do you see the Light Brigade, like as a, in conversation maybe with, the, with Starship Troopers? I mean, you know, Starship Troopers, and I think that the film and the book are very different. Um, I love the film because it's actually a satire. The book itself is, in fact, rather serious in that it's like, (laughs) we should all be corporate citizens, (laughs) corporate punishment, or corporal punishment works, and the only people who can be citizens are the ones who actually (laughs) kill for the state. And it's just, it's it's absolutely, positively, like, no BS. Uh, I saw the, the movie first, and yeah. then I read the book, and I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute, yeah. Yeah, the movie's great. I've seen the movie a million times. And it's, it's a clear yeah. homage, right? They're in South America, and right. again, Buenos Aires, you know, uh, Sao Paulo. So there, there's some very specific, um, you know, homages and, and calls back uh, to that one in particular, uh, because I wanted to, to have one where the, you know, protagonist kind of, kind of goes through the opposite, where it's like, hey, I... I believe everything corporations are telling me. And then I start to realize that actually this is all a lie and the world can be really different. Um, and I like sort of that reverse uh, journey for the protagonist. So, yeah, I, I do want to pause just, I think um, I realize that maybe listeners, readers don't know your background. Can you just talk a little bit about like how you came to science fiction, sort of what your background is? Cause you've sort of mentioned like you're a historian and I should have probably said that in the intro. Like, about oh yeah, no worries. Yeah, no, I, uh, yeah. I have a background in uh, history. I have a master's degree in historical studies. I actually uh, spent a couple years in South Africa. I got my master's degree actually analyzing how propaganda was used to recruit female fighters in the war against apartheid. Uh, and Robin Island, right, feature in South Africa, feature actually in the book. It's uh, something that comes up. Uh, and so that's where a lot of my my background in uh, resistance movements come from. And then also I studied the same thing in Alaska as well for for many years. Um, And then, of course, I've always I have a big background in just military history and because it fascinates me. uh, And then I've, you know, continued my studies with that. So that's that's where that comes from, is that, yeah, at the same time I was writing science fiction, you know, it's funny. Someone said to me, oh, well, you just go get an English degree if you want to be a writer. And I said, no, you become a historian Mm. because that's where all the stories are. The good stuff, (laughs) the real, the good (laughs) source material, right? I'll read all the novels, but the source material, my goodness, you start to get really deep into the the historical studies. And it's like, holy crap. Um, You can see patterns. You see things happening over and over again. Um, I think it, it has really helped me understand the world in a way that I had not before for better or worse. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's interesting. So Casey in the book club pointed out the last book we read the book before this one in April was the big nine by Amy Webb, Mm. um, which is actually sort of an interesting parallel in a number of ways, because you have the big six and it's also sort of about like this corporations, right. Mm -hmm. And the power that corporations have. and, And that's also a big part of Amy's book. And I'm curious, like, A, Casey wanted to know if you had read The Big Nine or if you're familiar with it or like where where some of that inspiration came from. I've not. No, I have not read that one. Um, again, uh, I use The Big Six because actually in publishing, it's like there's the there were the big six publishers <laughs> and then now they're down to the big five. So that was that nod. Um, but as far as like deciding how many corporations, you know, that was I think I think uh, again, in addition to like the history stuff, like I've read a lot of classic science fiction um, and classic science fiction, especially 80s, 90s science fiction, really dealt with a lot of, again, 
from the film standpoint, you can look at stuff like RoboCop and Judge Dredd really dealt with like what happens when we privatize um, all of these public services um, and when we put profits over like the well-being of our actual citizens. Um, and so that was something that is sort of like in my in my DNA, like I grew up on bad 80s science fiction movies as well. Um, <laughs> and so it's something I've always been uh, very aware of. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to talk about how you kept all of this straight, <laughs> the timelines, everything. You mentioned in the afterward that there is, that somebody helped you with sort of basically like a, a mathematical model. But like in my head, as I was reading this, I was like, how did she keep it? I like was picturing like a serial killer with strings and push pins <laughs> and just, you know, that like, see, it's like, how did you keep all of the timelines straight and all the things lined up? Well, that that um, image is probably very apt. Uh, I actually <laughs> went to a cabin in the woods. I went to a cabin in the woods, and I actually got these big post-it pieces of post-it paper, um, like big butcher paper, and posted them up. And I actually plotted out like um, base one, so the first time everyone's at base, mission one, and I put them all in order. And then I put all the characters who were alive or what had happened, da da da. And then actually, I mixed up all of the base ones and the m ones and b ones uh and and messed all those up and then put them into a spreadsheet um and we were able to check that uh again my agent uh hannah bowman is is uh happens to be married to dr joshua bowman uh, who has a phd in math and he actually saw her trying to work on this because we went over this when i got to that forty thousand words and said what the fuck i don't know what i'm going to do uh <laughs> and she said well let me try and he literally walks in seeing her do that on a, a whiteboard and said oh here's how we can do that and he did the whatever this graph is and it's actually on my website, actually. If you go to CaminHurley.com. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's like the last post that I did where I, he allowed, he said, yeah, it's cool to to show all those graphs. Um, and that's how we checked how we checked my work. Because I, I would put stuff in and I said, hey, I want to do this and this and this. And my agent's like, no, we can't do that because it breaks whatever. Anyway, I don't think yeah. analytically I'm not, I'm a, ah, you know, like throw it all on there. <laughs> and my agent's very analytical and pays a lot of attention to structure. So um, it was vital to have, you know, her input. She, I actually dedicated the book to her. That's my, my agent is Hannah um, because yeah. I, it wouldn't, it just wouldn't have existed. I got to 40 K and I'm like, now things have to go out of order and I don't know how to do it. Um, and so we, once we had all of that, in a, I think her and I worked on it um, over the phone, like what needs to happen when she put it all into a document and said, well, we could do it like this or like this. I chose which one I wanted to do. And then I put it all into a spreadsheet <laughs> and then moved everything around. And then I, so I have one spreadsheet that says, here is the lived chronological order, like, or how, here's the chronological order as it actually happens. Here's the lived order for Dietz, how she actually experiences all of these events. And then again, made little notes. Here's where the uh, interrogation scenes come in. Here's where, uh, who's still alive at this point in time. Here's a, who's alive at the base and what they think they just did. Uh, where, and here's what Dietz thinks that she just did. It was very complex, but the cool <laughs> thing was I knew, I knew I'd nailed it. I think it was the third read through I did because I read through it and we'd already, you know, checked all the timelines like many times and I read through it and I was like, it feels effortless. It felt like, Oh, well, of course, the, how, how easy. <laughs> how easy yeah. to, of course, well, of course, it felt logical. Uh, and I said, man, like the, the best thing you can say to someone is that you make writing look easy, right? Like if you, mm -hmm. if, if you can make something look effortless and easy, it actually it takes a 
shit prick of work to do it. Um, so yeah, it was it was a, a long process and it required uh, several people. I mean, I, I couldn't have done it by myself. Uh, absolutely not. So you totally could have put something in like out of order and I probably wouldn't have figured it out. But you know, there's like always there's those people always who those would people. and be like, wait a minute. Exactly. <laughs> and that was the first, and you know, and they would, they actually got to, I had several people uh, talk to me actually on Twitter who were like, oh yeah, I totally read through it and made sure it made chronological sense. Like, oh yeah, they were checking my work. This is science fiction, man. They check your work. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah I knew, totally. I knew it had to be, you know, uh, spot on for sure. Yeah. I'm curious, you mentioned the interrogation scenes. Did the book always include those? Because in, in theory, you could kind of do it without them. Like, I mean, they're obviously important and they they do a lot of work for the book. But like, did you ever go back and forth about like including those or not including those? No, I always wanted the interrogation scenes. I wanted to do, I wanted to make sure that I wanted to have those two timelines running. Old Deets and Young Deets is how we <laughs> would would refer to them so it's like you have the young deets running through all this stuff and they have the old the older deets who is being interrogated and i because i wanted those two moments to line up right i oh that was always something i wanted to happen even when i didn't know how i was going to get there i wanted her to break herself out right <laughs> Person, i was like how great is that you're breaking yourself out um i just thought would that be the coolest thing how to get there was the problem um, but it also allowed me, of course, to that's where all the political right. stuff comes into is, is those those interactions between those two worldviews um, where people can really chew on it and, and think about it. And, you know, there is this thing and it's in science fiction and mysteries, political thrillers, all of that. People love to read stuff to learn, even like fiction, right, to learn like, oh, wow, Stockholm is actually not sinking. It's like the land is still rising uh, in Scandinavia. There's things that I talk about in there that are actual like real, that's real shit, um, real studies, real, you know, things like that. And I think people appreciate it a lot more than they think. Uh, I think I hear all the time folks going, oh, I don't want politics in my science fiction. I'm like, science fiction is right. politics. Starship Troopers is hugely political, <laughs> hugely forever war, hugely political. It's military science fiction. Um, and I think that we forget that we do actually, we are actually drawn to that in a way um, that we, we pretend that we are not. So. Yeah. It did give me like 1984 vibes, right? Where you get that like section, totally, you know, where you're yeah. like, and it was actually for me at least in some ways kind of nice to have a bit of a break from a, like the relentless, just like horrifying and soul crushing death. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so just like, and that's the point, yeah. right. That it just like doesn't stop. And you feel like, there's no, you just start spinning in circles, but also to kind of like process the timeline a little bit to be like, okay, wait, so we're here and then it gives you a little bit of like a mm -hmm. mental, uh, not a break because it's like a different, just like flexing a different part of your brain, but like a way to kind of mm -hmm. be like decompress a little bit and then like before you're thrust back in. Because there were definitely moments where I was like, I got to take a break. <laughs> this is a lot of murdering. <laughs> yes. I think it was the um, For sure. the Martian kid where I was like, I got to just take a quick yeah. break on that one. <laughs> it was tough. Yeah. It was tough. Yeah. Um, and I like the disorientation too really feels very real to what I've read about soldiers, right? And war where you like don't know what day mm -hmm. it is. You don't know what time it is. You like don't know mm -hmm. how long you've been there. You don't really know where mm -hmm. you are. You kind of don't know who anybody is. Um, you can't really make connections to people because you don't know if you're ever going to see them again. It's sort of this like surreal and horrible world to be in. Mm -hmm. um, no, no, it's good. No, yeah. yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, it's a, it's a very different, um, 
world on purpose. Uh, and it's again, that, that talk about firing rates and like all that stuff and, and how people don't naturally want to kill each other. Uh, it's, it's all very, it's all done incredibly deliberately. Um, since the Vietnam War in the US, you know, firing rates have increased from like 25% to 97% uh, because they teach people how to kill. And it's, that's, it's a cultural, it's a, it's a crazy cultural thing. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by military stuff, but it is brutal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about gender in the book, because I will admit that like, I did not realize that Dietz was a woman until like later than I probably should have. In the book. <laughs> and I feel like that's, I mean, knowing you a little bit, like, I feel like that's maybe intentional that like you don't really, it's, it's not super, it's not made super obvious at the very beginning. Um, and I'm curious like how you thought about her character and like, was that a thought where you were like, maybe people won't know what gender she is until later. There are a couple things going on. One was um, the interrogation scenes. Actually, I think uh, the interrogator refers to her as she a, a couple yeah. of times toward the end. Um, and with Dietz, it's not until very like almost the absolute end of the book, where in the young Dietz sections, where it's like, oh, it's Gina, right. you know. Um, and one of the reasons was because I I wasn't sure at what point people were going to realize they're the same character. Uh, and I thought people are going to default to male for a genderless military grunt who has played football. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then they'll think, oh, this is a male character. And, oh, this is a female character getting interrogated. Um, and not necessarily realize that they were, you know, uh, the same person. Until about half- I really wanted people to, it to click halfway through. And I think I got that idea from uh, fifth season mm-hmm. um when nk jemison just did this masterful job about halfway through you go oh <laughs> 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 i see what you did there um with how she um works with pov and and who is really whom uh and i love that and i wanted to do something um very similar so so some of it had to do with that some of it also my agent really you know i had actually more gender markers more she's about the person being interrogated. Um, I think the Dietz thing, uh, I think at one point Tanaka, if they're in like a proof in the proofs, if you actually read the first printing, um, the first hardcover printing, um, Tanaka actually refers to Dietz as she about three quarters of the way through because it's a very long story, but my proofs did not make it in time for the first printing. Um, but it's that way in the ebook. So, and my, and my agent had come to me and just said, Hey, I think we should obfuscate just a little bit more. Um, so I did, you know, end up just shifting that a little bit. Um, because again, I think a lot of people do come to it and go who don't know. And even people don't, especially if they don't know Cameron Hurley, right? right? A lot of people read Cameron Hurley and say, Oh, a dude, I get that all the time. Oh, Cameron, it's a dude's name. Uh, it's a military science fiction novel, a dude. And we were very clear about that, right? From the cover image and all of that, where it's like, I want this to, I want to mess with people's expectations, certainly. Um, but also not feel like I'm not saying that it's a woman uh, because I don't, I actually don't like the ones that don't necessarily specify gender because I kind of feel like it's cheating. Mm. Um, which is, which is why, you know, I did want to have the, you know, very clear uh, at the end that yes, this is Gina Dietz. This is a female character. This is a lesbian love story. Yeah, I love <laughs> oh, that. Here you go. Yeah. Right. Great surprise. So. <laughs> surprise. You've been reading a lesbian love story the whole time. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, it's funny. Cause like, in the book club, I mentioned it. I was like, hey, you know, did anyone else have this experience? And and about half of the people said yes. And and some people until mm-hmm. until that Gina moment actually were like, wait, mm-hmm. what? Um, which I think, you know, it is like, 
I assumed, like, especially there's also that scene in the very beginning where she gets into a fight, which like I don't really associate with yes. like women as much. And then, so it's right. You yeah. have this like grunt signs up for the military, plays football, gets into a fight immediately. So like in my head, I was like, all right, this is a, this is a dude. And then it was, I think mm-hmm. around halfway through where I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Which is delightful, actually. Probably the time she hooks up with Tanaka, probably being like, "Wait a minute!" I think actually he does <laughs> yeah. say she in the in the version I have. He does, yeah. yeah at some I point. think that was when yeah. I was like, "What?" <laughs> Which is actually really a delight, uh, and like it was really fun to then go back and think, like, "Yeah, actually, there is no reason she couldn't be or like wouldn't be," but it just was, and it was interesting for me to be like, "Rose, come on now, like, why would you assume?" Like, you know, like, <laughs> Cameron Hartley novel. I thought that was really fun. And like, yeah, to have, to have, and then, but then another half of the um, readers were like, oh no, I knew it was a she from the very beginning. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, like, (laughs) you know, which is sort of interesting. It's all about the reading experience. Yeah. Yeah, Just, we all bring our own, you know, expectations to work, which is why I find it fascinating. Totally. Totally. I'm curious, um, you know, what kinds of responses you've gotten so far from the book? Like, what are people saying as they read it? What are you hearing? I have never written a book that's gotten so much positive response. Uh, I was actually, Kirkus, which I was so excited about. Oh yeah. I, it got three starred reviews. Ooh. Yeah. If Kirkus yeah, yeah. hates me, hates me. And yeah, they, they did a start of you. Uh, and just like, I think on Goodreads, it was at like 4.7 stars for a long time. I think it's still at 4.1 or something. Um, so even, even you know, the occasion was, oh, this is, there are not that many. Uh, I, I expected a lot more uh, pushback. But in fact, again, uh, people, like you had said, it's it's very timely and it speaks to how people feel right now, which to me, that's what the best science fiction does. And especially military science fiction. I mean, gosh, we've been at war since 2001, right? Um, military science fiction is all about connecting with that, the emotions of the culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think people really, really connected with it. And what I loved about it is that they seem to actually, this sounds silly, but they seem to actually be reading the book I wrote. Mm-hmm. That's something as an author, like when we, we start out and we go, I'm going to write a book about, you know, X, Y, Z, and people are going to get blah, blah, blah out of it. Uh, well, what people actually get out of it is very different. You know, I think of my God's War novels, they're very all over the place. They're for my first uh, trilogy. But people have very different interpretations of them. Whereas something like this, because I was so obvious, <laughs> because the politics are like so clear, um, everybody is reading the same book. Mm. Uh, and they are all getting that same hopeful message out of it and all feeling like, yeah! Fuck them all, burn it down, you know, at the end of it, which is great. I'm like, yes, I wrote the book that I wanted to write and people are reading the book that I wanted them to read. Um, so overall, again, I know everybody wants to hear like, oh, I've gotten so much, blah, blah, blah. but no, it's been incredibly positive. Um, just shockingly so to me. So that actually is a good segue into Hector's question, which is sort of he was curious, like what you hoped people would take away from the book. Like what are what you said the people are reading the book you wrote? Like what are you hoping people like close the book and then sort of think or do? I really wanted folks to start questioning uh everything that they've been told, right? And I think that was some of the um process that I went through uh after the election as well. Uh and again, I grew up I'm white and middle class and I believe like there was a story I believed, right? Um that yes, you know, things are hard and it's rough, but we're getting better and it's going to be okay. 
and we just have to work within the system and you know do like hillary we'll just work within the system and after that it just it was like a wake-up call and i thought burn it all down <laughs> burn it all down and Le Guin, ursula Le Guin, which I, it's you know i paraphrase it in the book too talked about that in the national with her when she won the national book award in her speech she talks about you know how capitalism just feels like it's this inevitable thing that's going to last forever but so did the divine right of kings uh all of these things that we think cannot be changed and are impossible and we have to live, you know, with these corporate overlords and we have to, you know, survive with whatever Bezos gives us. You know? <laughs> a moon landing with Bezos. That's those that's not the world that we necessarily have to have. We don't have to have a Robocop future. Um, we can burn it down and start again. Uh, and it's a much more radical view, certainly, but I think we're sort of at the point where we need to do radical. I think we uh, have tried very hard to work from within and to change an existing system. Uh, and at this point, it's incredibly ingrained. I understand why the French have had like five or six or 10 revolutions. <laughs> I completely understand. And you notice when the French protest, they get results. People do not, people are like, do not mess with the French when they're pissed <laughs> off. Uh, and we don't, we don't have that. Uh, you know, someone, I was actually just reading today on Twitter about Again, the concentration camps that we have for migrant children uh, and and refugees, and her just talking about, you know, the only way we could possibly get rid of these if, if literally if Americans were in the streets every day protesting it, and we aren't. We're not in the streets every day protesting uh, our government or concentration camps or any of these things that are going on in the wars, right? The wars have been going on forever, uh, and I'm the same, right? I'm absolutely the same. I'm like I'm not doing it either. Um, but I look at that and go, but what if we did? Uh, someone had said like a general, a three day general strike could absolutely change the face of America, right? Um, and remind people that, hey, corporations are not, you know, these, these, um, massive things that are like these divine gods. They do, they feel like divine gods, you know, the god of Bezos. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking on Bezos, but, um, Fair, but yeah, fair. like we worship them. Yeah, we worship them as like these gods and they can, it can never change, right? Divine right of kings. Uh, and in fact, where all the power comes from is the people. Uh, and I think some folks understand that and that's why they try and tell us that we don't matter, uh, which is, you know, comes up in the book as well. So that was really what I wanted people to get from it was say, hey, does the world really need to be this way? How can we make a better world? How can it be different? How can it be, you know, um, it's, I think it's very easy to get disillusioned and it's very easy to feel ground down and to say, well, it's always been like this. It's always going to be like this and we can't change anything. When in fact, we, it's changing all the time. You know, um, worlds are ending all the time. And I think we're seeing some of that uh, now uh, across the world, which is why people are so nuts right now, um, because there is a lot of change, uh, you know, climate change and um, all the, the huge refugee crises because of that. Uh, and we're going to see a lot more uh, of that shift. So that's the fun trick of capitalism is that people can't protest because if they did, they would lose their jobs and then have no money and they, then die. <laughs> I'm like, how would I afford my drugs? Right. I would die. Right. Yep. No, my, my agent actually told me that because I have a chronic illness, so I have to have medication. I'll die without in, in 48 hours. And she said, you know, I, as much as you talk about wanting to go to protests and go knock out KKK people, remember that if you get picked up and put in jail, 
the chances of you dying in jail are very, very high. So consider that. Just, I was like, just thought. Shit. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. Um, but it's something it is like, we have to consider it. Uh, right. And it does. It sucks. And that's, that's what it's all about is they, they gotcha. Yeah. You know, health insurance, health systems, you know, um, that's what happens when, when capitalism uh, literally is holding your life in its hands. Uh, and to me, oh my gosh, I think of uh, Hunger Games a lot uh, in that I think of the, the first line of those kids when they go to storm the Capitol and there's like this first line of kids and they're running up a- against the city and like being blown to pieces. And I think to get to that point where you have to believe your life is like, there's nothing left. Like that's, that's it. It's like, it's the point where the government has given you absolutely no other option, but to literally throw down your life in the hopes that there could be a change. Um, and I do feel, you know, to some extent we, you know, we're talking about guillotines, right. With corporations right now. And I'm like, that's bad. The fact that it's gotten to that point, they need to realize like we're coming up against the people throwing themselves onto the the you know battlements and then everybody else jumping on top of them and, and toppling it. Um, you can't take and take and take and take and take. Eventually, people are going to break. Um, and I'm curious when that's going to be, uh, especially for Americans. Yeah, we talked about like the sort of grueling, endless sort of gruesome way that you outline like lay out the war and like just people just die constantly and there's like just really horrific stuff happening. I'm curious, like as a writer, how do you kind of like protect your mental health when writing a book like this, which is just like in some sections, so brutal. Like how do you try to kind of like, I don't know, stay mentally healthy during the writing process? To be honest, I think a a lot of, this is also why I like to do one-off books. I've done mostly just standalone books. Um, When I did my God's War series, which was about this unending, you know, war in this apocalyptic world, uh, I was writing that for like eight years in total. And I was really depressed afterwards. Like, this is too much. I have to stop and do something completely different. Um, What I like about the one-offs is that they are, again, one year of writing, another year of, you know, um, ideation and and editing and things like that. Uh, But then it's done. Then it's over and I can, I can kind of move on. Um, Some of this also is, you know, yes, I'm writing about um, brutal, terrible things. A lot of those are real stories. Um, You know, stories from, you know, friends and family who, uh, you know, have, have been in the, the armed forces for a long time. There's a wonderful book uh, called The Unwomanly Face of War uh, that details uh, all of these first person accounts from women who uh, served in World War II in Russia, uh, which is way worse than a lot of the stuff that ended up, <laughs> ended mm-hmm. up in the book. Um, the things that people have done to each other are just are shocking. Uh, I think the Truth and Reconciliation Com- Committee in South Africa actually got people to talk about um, all of the political crimes and things that were committed under apartheid. Uh, and going through those is pretty harrowing. Um, but to me, there is something cathartic about taking that horror and making a narrative of it. And I don't know why. I think it's about making sense of the world. It's making sense of the senseless. Uh, and that's actually why when I started I started blogging for that very similar reason is that I want to take that. I want to take all the shit that happened to me that was just seemed random 
and create a narrative. Our brains really like to have narrative. I think it's it's how we, you know, create consciousness. It's how we understand the world. Um, and so to me, it was actually cathartic to do it. It's like, I read it and it's like, gosh, that's horrible. But to actually then do something with it um, actually felt really good. So it, it's one of those things in, sh- in in a short amount of time, it's okay. I think if I, if I had to do that for eight years, writing military science fiction novels that are of this level, then no. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine... Yeah, even reading it, I was like, "Whoa, I can't imagine writing some of this stuff." Which, like, it, like it is. I mean, have you have you seen Chernobyl? I haven't seen it yet. No, it's so, but good. I hear, it's so, so yeah, good. I hear it's great. Um, yeah. But there's a podcast that goes along with it where they talk to the showrunner, um, and it's like an interview with him. And one of the things he says is actually similar. You know, he a lot of that is obviously based on re- like it's a real thing that happened, right? So, mm-hmm. and a lot of apparently m- most of the show is real in that like these things really did happen he pulled from that book midnight in chernobyl i think it's called um Mm -hmm. and on the podcast he talks actually about um a bunch of stuff that didn't even make it into the show that is like even worse than what they showed in the show right because it's like at some point you know like like, (laughs) yeah it's wild he was he would tell these stories and it's it's really interesting because it is um it's a really it's a really really good show and there are also moments where you're like that can't have really happened he's like oh no all of that happened like this is all real that really happened and there's a moment i think in the first podcast episode where the um person who's interviewing the showrunner basically is like well what about this did that really happen he's like oh yeah that happened and actually this worst thing happened that we didn't put in the show (laughs) so it's just like it's so fascinating i definitely recommend watching and actually listening to the podcast because it's really interesting to hear kind of like how he took all of this real stuff and like what they included and what they didn't and then also sort of like obviously it's fiction so you have to compress certain characters down into like one person but it's super interesting to hear him talk about like the process of trying to translate a very real thing into this show and actually has some parallels to the to your book because it's the show is really about like what happens when everybody is lying like what happens when you have an entire system where like Mm. you, you can't tell the truth and there's this there's this amazing moments in the first episode and throughout the show where, but in the first episode, I mean, this is not a spoiler because everyone knows what happens in Chernobyl, right? Like, and like within the first seven seconds of the, uh, like the first, like, well, that's not true. The first, like, it's very clear, like it's, you know, it happens, the, the meltdown happens. And then mm-hmm. you have this whole, basically the whole first episode is all these people just being like, no, it's not, it hasn't exploded. It's just yeah. a roof fire. And it's like, no, I saw it. And they're like, nope. Nope. Doesn't, nope. And yeah. they just keep sending people in to be like, go turn on the water valve. And they're like, there's nothing there. Like, it's not a thing. You know, but it's, like, but it's, it's a sort of about, right? Like what happens when you have this system where it only operates and it only works because everybody is lying and you cannot tell the truth and like, you know, all this stuff. And it's, it's amazing. You should definitely watch it. I will get off oh my, my soapbox now. Yeah, no, no, no. Again, it's, it's not on my list. So no, this it's is so good. good. This is um, good. okay. I want to talk about the ending of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were two interpretations of the ending that I want to ask you about. So one, one that people said in the, at the end, one, some, some group of people thought that Dietz initiated the blink and others thought that she had like saved a bunch of people and sort of taken them hmm. elsewhere and had not initiated the blink. And I'm curious, like a, which is correct. And B like, how did you think about, cause like ending something like this, where there's so many like things happening and you kind of want it. I knew as a reader, I was like, this isn't good. This is going to end in a way that is not fully satisfying. Cause it's mm-hmm. war. And like that never, you never get like the full, like she saves all her friends. Like, no, mm-hmm. some of them die. Like, but like, I'm curious, like how you thought about the ending and like how we should interpret the ending. Uh, absolutely. She caused the blank. Yeah. That was, that was interesting. I haven't heard that. Um, that, 
she that the idea that she was saving them before the blank yeah no she caused the blank um which again was the whole i love that symmetry I, and i think i watched looper too much <laughs> i love looper so <laughs> yeah. much um right. i love this idea that the thing that initiates her to join the war is the thing that she actually committed right like she actually did it um and so there's a lot of people like oh paradox I'm like yes isn't it wonderful it's fiction <laughs> i can do with that if i want um so yes, she initiated the blank uh, in in part to again to to save them, you know, to save this little piece from everything that was coming. And with this idea that burn it all down, right? Like even if her doing this would have changed or would have you know not started the war, which of course it started the war, there would have been something else. Uh, there would have been something else that you know the the system itself was too ingrained, and she had to uh, start over. And it was this idea of hope right of saying well i can't save everything but i can save this little piece and i don't know where we're gonna go again does she go forward and that's why i love open endings does she go you know forward in time backward in time does she just take them to mars does she you know who knows um but she thinks i'm gonna save this little piece because everything needs to be burned the f down um so that was that was my thinking with uh doing that ending is that i did i wanted it to be hey um that whole time, you know, time is a loop and yet still feel that you got a hopeful ending and that she was actually taking control of something for the first time really in the war. Yeah. So she takes her like little pot of people and takes them yes. away. But then everyone yeah. Just else. a little carves out her little yeah. ice cream scoop of people. And that's, that's all that she gets. What is a, what I say? A million or a million yeah. and a half or something. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I love open-ended endings also, and I know some people hate them, but I'm like all for it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think a successful novel to me, and again, it's not for everyone because a lot of people like, which is fine with a thriller mystery style where everything's tied up in a nice neat bow and you feel, hey, the world order is fine and everything's great. I like to be thinking about a novel after I've read it. I like to think about what the characters and what's going to happen next and the choices that could have been made. I like there to be a few questions. I want to feel satisfied, but I want there to be a few little open-ended things that I can actually think about. Um, so yeah, I tend to write what I, <laughs> what I prefer yeah. for sure. Uh, speaking of Looper, BD from the book club asks if you've considered a film adaptation of this. <sighs> It's so funny. People are always like, have you considered making this into a movie? And I'm like, no, no, I never thought of that. Uh, we do have a film agent uh, who has been shopping this one. So cool for, for a little cool. bit. It's one of those things. It's, uh, you know, all of us, I think are uh, all of us. I mean, science fiction writers. So many folks I know were sh shipping, shopping multiple projects. I mean, I have a geek feminist project that's been literally being shot for years. I have a light brigade project. I have my killing Eve meets die hard in space, which is losing gravity. Um, that's about to get taken out by some folks at CIA. So there's tons of stuff, right? And it's just like, it's not like I can just go, yes, make a movie. That's always my favorite though. Have you considered it? It's like, yes, but I just, all I have is my phone. <laughs> I can do a YouTube movie myself. Uh, so yes, all these projects are being shopped. Um, you know, varying degrees of interest. Uh, Hollywood is a, a strange beast. Someone actually said the difference between Hollywood and publishing. Obviously there's many, but one of them is that in Hollywood, everyone tells you, yes, 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 yes. Oh, it's great. And we love you. And it's wonderful. And then it comes at the point to actually give you money and then everything falls apart. 
But in publishing, it's no, 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 no. We don't want to hear from you. You suck. Everything's awful. But as soon as they say yes, it your your book is going out. You're going out and you're getting published. There was actually a screenwriter, uh, a story about a screenwriter who actually uh, decided to publish like that a novel. And it was like, oh, they accepted it. That's great. And he's like, literally, they accepted the novel. And I kept waiting for them to cancel it. <laughs> because, because that's what you do is you're like you just it gets development then they cancel it it gets to you know script right they cancel it and he's like but once they said yes it was yes yeah. <laughs> it got published um so yeah so hollywood's a, a strange piece but i would love to see i i watch a lot of again bad science fiction movies and also lots of these you know smaller um science fiction films uh especially netflix has a ton of them and i love them to pieces and i would i would adore to see uh I think someone called this like forever war meets 12 monkeys. And I can totally see that, um, uh, yeah. how that could be adapted for sure. Do you have a dream casting for Deets? <sighs> Who did I say? Someone had asking about that. Um, and I think I was said, uh, Gina Rodriguez, I think would be good. Uh, Tessa Thompson. Um, definitely, definitely that for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, those are all the questions on my list about this book. Um, I feel like I need to go reread it. I, I'm super excited to see the map of yes. all the different that yeah. you, you talked about in the, uh, on your blog. I'll go look at that because mm -hmm. yeah, I like ended it and I was like, oh no, I'm going to have to make a map. <laughs> yes. I, don't have to, so. I wonder if you were actually, the New York Times reviewer was like, can you send me the graph? <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, I can. <laughs> So. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that like, I am not a reader who like cares deeply about that, like the specific accuracy and logistics. So I'm like, I thought about it and then I was like, I'm not going to do that. But, yes. um, but like it did, it did seem like a fun, like a fun project for someone else to do. So I'm glad that someone else did it. Yes. No, apparently the, uh, yeah. And, uh, Dr. Joshua Wobin who, who worked on it, he's actually going to make a paper, like a, a math paper for a journal oh, about cool. it. Yeah. I told him he needs to get a card that says, um, time travel consultants. Yes. <laughs> so can, yeah. <laughs> that's perfect yep. yeah 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 um well thank you so 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 much for coming on the bonus podcast to talk about the book um i'm so glad you read it it was really fascinating i won't say like fun to read in many cases but, but i'm really glad that it we read it it was an experience yeah it was an experience yeah it was an experience no, I'm, I'm like by the end i was like yeah it was it was really fun to read and um you know especially once once i figured out the time travel part mm -hmm. then it was really fun to be like okay wait where are we, Where are we? Who, who's yeah. this like who are these people you know and you'd see these names come up you know over and over again and one of my i'm not very good at tracking lots and lots of names mm -hmm. i like basically give up at some point if there's like lord of the rings i like love deeply but i don't know who anyone is like you know there's just way too many names um and so like with this actually i kind of appreciated that like some of them mattered but like also a lot of it was like you're never gonna like these people are sort of like not interchangeable but they they are going to come and go and yeah. like, you're going to see them and then you're not going to see them. And it's okay to be confused about who is who. Cause that's kind of the point. I was like, me too, all the time. Um, <laughs> um, well, thank you so, so, so much for coming on this uh, bonus podcast. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It was awesome. <laughs>